So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed, plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's episode is incredibly dear to Erin and I because, well, because we need functional evidence in our field so that we can best evaluate and treat the little ones that we have been called to serve. All right, so the backstory on the title. I love reading books on physics and astrophysics for fun. Yeah, I'm that nerdy, but those books make me happy. And Sir Isaac Newton, who's a famous physicist and 
brilliant, brilliant man. He has this quote that says, if I have seen farther than others, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. But y'all, isn't that what we are supposed to do? We learn from the greats in our field that came before us. I mean, Jerry Logerman, I mean, where would we be without her? Joan Arvidson. I mean, they're pillars in the world of dysphagia. We learn from them. And then in some small way, we make our own contributions. And then we pay it forward again to the next generation of clinicians by mentoring and serving as a clinical supervisor. And then they go out and they do great things in our field and they build upon our contributions and so forth and so forth and so forth. And y'all, it's a beautiful, nerdy circle of life. And Aaron and I are here for it. Also, I need to say this. So please heed this message. If you are looking for a quick fix solution for feeding therapy, or if your aim is to help every child become completely 100% oral fed and for every child to get off their feeding tubes. Yeah, you need to reassess your goals. There is no such thing as a quick fix in the world of pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. And often our patients may require a feeding tube for the rest of their lives because of other medical etiologies that you may or may not know about or prognosis because of one of their etiologies and comorbidities. And y'all, that's okay. Ultimately, our goal is to bring joy, make a meal functional and safe. And if a little one gets off their feeding tube, well then job well done. But to say for another kiddo on your caseload, the end game is for the little one to have a couple of bites every dinner with their family so that they can enjoy breaking bread together. Then y'all, job well done on that too. So make sure when you are pursuing these courses that you understand the nature of each patient's unique etiologies and comorbidities and that that drives what your end game plan of care goals are. So. Huge, huge heartfelt disclaimer suggestion right out the gate. So, hello, hello, Erin. Hello. How are you? I'm good. It's been a long week, but we're surviving. We're surviving. I, not gonna lie, I'm utterly exhausted. I spent two days deep cleaning and purging Bear's room and I took a panoramic, y'all, who is panoramic worthy for the before and after. He had hoarded 14 cardboard boxes. I counted them. There was 14 cardboard boxes, but he had them like intricately stacked inside of each other and then had hidden them under his bed. And I was like, why do you need these? He's like, that's my box collection. I was like, we're not, we're not having a box collection. (laughs) Well, you know, at least, at least. It's the little things that bring well, him I joy, felt you know. Leaf collection and his rock collection and his leaf collection was growing funny colors. So we narrowed it down to he could keep the basket full of rocks, but everything else was yeah. Hi. Yeah. Yeah. So y'all. Uh, oh boy, well, the recycling there'll be much recycling come Thursday morning. <laughs> okay. So this is something 
Aaron and I get asked a lot by, by folks from all over about what kind of classes we like taking. And so we thought we would pour out our favorite resources, the classes that we want to take, the classes that I'm currently saving my pennies to go take because like I want to dysphagia research society, but that's a lot of money and far, far from my house. So these, there's also courses that we're recommending that we haven't taken because finances, families are expensive. And, but the evidence that they're presenting and putting out into the world through journal articles and things like that are profound. And, or we've like, you've interviewed them or we've taken smaller versions of their courses. And a big thing that I think is important just in general, in regards to any of these courses that we talk about or any courses that you look into is making sure that you are not only doing your research on the course, but also doing your research on the people providing the course to dive deeper into other things that they've done, their experiences, you know, where they're coming from, because that's really important. I mean, I know that Michelle and I, I remember taking one course and I obviously won't say what course it is, but we took a course and it sounded great. Like the title sounded great. It seemed like it was going to have all this information. We didn't really do our research on who was providing the course. And we kind of walked out being like, this This wasn't very good. And so that was a kind of on our part, our fault, because we didn't really do much research on it. But it was a learning experience because it was it was a long six hours. But that just make sure that you're you're doing research on that. You know, have they done research? Have they attend? You know, been a part of other state conventions, any conferences like that? Because things can look really pretty. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're they have all that experience and evidence to back it up. So, yes. So here, here's the, here's the catch when you take a course and, and I had to update my CV for a work thing the other day. And when I updated my CV, it dawned on me, I have produced over 220 hours of continuing education credits myself as a lot. And I kind of sat back and I was like, but that's not all me. That's not my brain. That is me interviewing greats in the field, right? And so I say this, know that when you go to take a course, everybody's got a shtick. What is their shtick? What are they trying to sell you? And critically analyze that because there's a reason why we do a podcast that puts the evidence out for free because we just need to put evidence out into the world and to shine other people's lights. No, I know. And, and it, it's exhausting. And you are, you only like, if we want to better our field and better the therapy that we provide and the research and our reputation in the medical world, because sometimes we are the redheaded stepchildren. And I think part of that is because we are mostly women and don't do a great job of advocating for ourselves and our worth. And so 
if we want that, you you build off of the greats in our field. They have this information, they have this research, and building off of that instead of trying to, you know, do everything on your own or in in those kinds of ways. And so that's what where we're coming from is like none of these courses are be all end all courses. None of these courses you take are gonna give you everything you need to know about every population in regards to feeding and swallowing. It is your job to take the information from these courses and put it within your own caseload and your own experience and your own philosophies. We all treat very differently and that's okay. So find the courses that more so mirror your therapeutic style and your therapeutic presence within reason of research and it being evidence-based and functional. But we are a makeup of various experiences and the courses are one of part of those experiences and resources. So we'll finally go into giving y'all some actual courses instead of just all, all the things. Yes. Okay. So, all right, let's start out the gate with, let's go with three of our, we'll do more than three. I don't know why I, I put three in here. What are your um, preferred neonatal or infant feeding courses to pursue and grow your evidence-based triangle? So you want to go first, lady? Yeah. So I haven't taken the full course of this, but I've I've sat through um, some of the lectures that she's given and taken some of the smaller courses here, and that's Erin Ross Sophie course. And what's really cool about that too is that her website is Feeding Fundamentals, and you can take either the full Sophie online certificate course which is a 12-hour course. And it's, I mean, we use this when I worked in the NICU. It's all about working with preterm and medically complex infants. And it's helpful because she talks about both NICU and then early intervention settings. So I get a lot of post-NICU kiddos. But very much decision-making and how you assess and intervene with these patients that may not present in regards to feeding in the same way that a term child would or a child that's typically developing. And the cool part is that she has a lot of resources. You can take like shorter courses such as, you know, supporting parents during early feedings, developmental and internal regulation in feeding. So if you're kind of like, I really just want to dive into this. I, I need to hone in on this part of my skill set in regards to treating these patients. You can do that. And she has other resources such as some mentorship, blogs, and a lot of support that you can also get if you've gone through this course. And we've had Erin Ross on the podcast. She's phenomenal. So I really, I would highly, highly recommend that um, when anyone that I'm working with says that they want to gain more experience with infants. She's kind of, her course is kind of the first place that I sent them because I think it gives you a really good base for for understanding the complexities because infants can seem easy because you're bottle feeding and, but there's so much to it. And so she helps to break that down to why it's so different and all the little intricacies of what you're looking for in regards to their cues. Okay. So one that I love in this is it does carry over into the interprofessional piece as well as the, um, the NANT conference, the national association of neonatal therapists. 
It's in Cincinnati for April of 2022. That just feels foreign saying it like that. But this is this is fantastic because you're going to be surrounded by OTPT nurses and SLPs that all work with NICU or NICU grads. And I I love that. I love that the emphasis interprofessional practice because occupational therapists are the gatekeepers to regulation for all ages. We love our occupational therapists. And I just think that this would be a fantastic class for everybody to, to take. It is, it is live and it's, you know, their annual to do, but they have on-demand courses right now that you can take uh, that opened April 19th and it's extending through to July 30th, 2021. Uh, So I would uh, recommend, I'm going to take a picture of this and then we can post it in a story um, later this week. But I would highly recommend that you get out of your silo therapist and that you engage in a conference that has other disciplines. I do also when it and when it comes specifically to NICU, because she loses me a little bit when we go to some of the older kids, but Catherine Shaker's courses for the NICU, she's brilliant. She has a ton of experience. She has a couple different NICU courses, but she is very, very thorough in regards to etiologies and their impact on feeding, respiratory support and their impact on feeding. So that is super helpful. And if you're looking for courses that are free, Dr. Brown's website has a lot of free courses. I think Aaron Ross does some on that website as well. So if you, you know, we want, yes, there are courses that you're going to have to pay quite a bit of money for, but that's because they give a certification or this person has been lecturing for 30, 40 years and their intellectual property is, I mean, people are really, is high in demand, but our goal also is to get information out there that's not super expensive and you can can access that without having to pay all of this money because it this information shouldn't be hoarded essentially. So like I think yes, these specialized certifications and courses, you're gonna have to pay for them. That's how it works. But um if you want like a little snippet or a little a little course to just slowly dip your toe in, then there are some free courses for that as well. I've done the Dr. Brown's courses. I'd say I go to three or four a year at least. And we, um, on an afternoon around like one or two o'clock in the afternoon, but they've all been every single Dr. Brown's class I've taken has been really good. I'm trying to think, I think I've even had students sit through them with me. Like if a grad student for that day. Yeah. I, yes, I have (gasps) knew Aaron did it. Sorry, I had a student name Aaron after like Aaron, Aaron. And so like we just called her new Aaron. So hi, new Aaron. But um, yeah, her and I sat and did um, a class. And I'm, I'm trying to think there was there's probably been one or two others that, but I mean, 
they, they, the, the student couldn't get the CEU with it, but I mean, they could take the class and it was, that's great for growing their evidence-based practice. Actually, as a student clinician, also to model that we continue to do this, right? That we're, we're supposed to do this. I don't know where to stick this recommendation, so I'm just going to stick this one in. Um, ASHA SIG 13. Y'all, ASHA Special Interest Group for Dysphagia, they are really stepping it up to make sure that pediatric feeding and swallowing, including infants, coursework is covered in their um, publication and their publications count towards ASHA CEUs. So, I mean, I think, I think the annual rate might've gone up to like 30 bucks, you know, it's 30 bucks. And then you take a, the journal and you read through the journal and they answer the questions and it's anywhere from one and a half to three continuing education units or hours. And, and y'all, they're, they're good. It's not like, it's not like the journal articles that we had to read in order to graduate grad school. I mean, it's functional. Like you can read it and you're like, oh, okay. So this is why they recommended this bottle nipple, or this is why they, you know, recommend um, sideline position for this specific case, or I don't know, they've had more case studies in there. I like, I like a good case study. The informed SLP and not, this is another one that could kind of go everywhere. It's really great because they, I think it's every month. I could be wrong. It might be every couple months. Um, release articles that they've read and they've summarized for you. Because we all want to read the research. That's really great. We do a journal club at work that we would read articles and discuss them. And that's super helpful. But at the same time, I think when you're just starting out, those articles can be pretty overwhelming, especially like you said, when they're not tied to a case. So when someone says like, read all the research, read as much research as you can, that's very overwhelming. Like that, it takes a very special person to sit down and just like read through a bunch of research and then be, and, but then what are you tying it to? What patient are you kind of, you don't like, I'm someone that when I read them, when I would study or I would read articles, I would have to then functionally apply it in some way for me to remember and understand it. And yes, research is great. This is where the evidence comes from. But it's very similar in when we look at language research where they complete studies with certain therapeutic strategies that may not always be functional. So we have to take what the research says and then we have to figure out how to make it functional. But that takes these courses that do that for you and that also takes experience and mentorship to be able to try a strategy and and kind of work through it from there. But that's why places like the Informed SLP and SIG 13 can be really helpful because they help do that for you. And people whose brains, like people who have that experience and have more cases to tie the research to, that makes that very helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So two more courses that can go every which way. The American Cleft Palate Craniofacial Association, they have annual conferences, right? And um, their, their next one is um, March 29th, April 2nd, also 2022. 
and it's in Fort Worth, that'd be a cool conference to go to put that on the dream list. Um, but that hits that infant age, right? And, and, and clefts are different and we're learning more and more about uh, laryngeal clefts and, and the rise of this. And so, and, and unless you, like our dear friend, Melissa Montiel, who is the craniofacial VPI person at the Children's Hospital um, in Charleston, like she lives, eats, breathes, cleft all day, every day, right? But if, if you don't see it regularly, well, then we get rusty. I mean, I get rusty. I mean, Lord knows that like I, I have a, a little one with the cleft pop up at periodically or like I have a little one that I'm chasing because I'm pretty sure he's got a laryngeal cleft, but you know, his small town ENT was like, mm, I don't feel comfortable. Um, if this is what we're concerned about, let's send him actually to MUSC to get the diagnostic workup. But to go and to pursue that at, and it just for like a weekend, a long weekend where you have that part of your soul filled. I mean, I don't know about you, but well, yes, you do. Every time you and I go to a conference together, we're utterly exhausted afterwards because your brain just can't absorb anymore. And there's always after hours, a delightful beverages and whatnot. So, ha, huh, but that's, this would be a fantastic conference to go to if you're interested in craniofacial or clefts. Speaking of laryngeal clefts, like I have had a lot of, I have a close relationship with the ENT, one of the ENTs here. Like we share a lot of patients and I've had there, I've seen so many kiddos with laryngeal clefts recently, but in speaking with him, he was telling me about some research coming out of Seattle and I don't have the article pulled up so I can look for it later, but they did uh, some injections with kiddos that did not have laryngeal clefts, but that had some swallowing deficits to kind of give them a boost. And research showed that for a lot of those kiddos that did help with their swallowing because it was almost like they had a little, what did he call it? He was like, it's like some suspenders. Like it just kind of (laughs) was to help them with that timing. And I thought that was super interesting, but I would have no idea about any of that research if I didn't have that relationship with him and those conversations and sharing those patients. So that was really cool because he's someone that also loves to talk about the research and is uses evidence a lot. So it was in that networking that I have been exposed to other research articles through those other professionals. So that's just a side note, but that was really cool. And I don't know another thought that it could go in infant or toddler or child age, but if this doesn't also explain to you though, that these, so many of these recommendations don't always fit in a bubble. Yes. Yes. As we're, as we keep saying <laughs> this, 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 I know we're talking about this neonatal age, infant, but this is for this, this, and this. Yes. Yes. But I, I circle around to sometimes you have an infant that is born and there is a red flag right away that we need to get a genetics consultation, right? Thumbs, sacral dimpling, all all sorts of different things, right? I would highly recommend that as a practitioner, if you 
work closely with a population of um, a disorder or a disability that go to that annual conference. I mean, we have a little one with syndrome and that's new. Um, there's Fox G1 research, um, Fox G1 syndrome research. Oh, I can't remember their technical, but they have an annual conference. And, and I mean, you know, Aaron and I have said, sometimes you have a caseload where you see like a trend on your caseload, where you're seeing a lot of patients that have condition. If you're seeing that in your area, or if you're interested in becoming a, having that as like your professional focus area, then I would recommend going to that conference. Yes, it will be interprofessional practice, but if that disorder or disease is known for requiring alternate means of nutrition or for having aspiration risk factors, well, then that's, then you want to go and you want to learn from the greats. Well, even because you and I talked specifically about, uh, I have a good amount of kiddos with Rett syndrome on my caseload right now. Part of that is, well, actually, they just, it just was coincidental, but the Shriners Hospital here has a Rett syndrome clinic. And because I have a little one that I kind of was with her throughout her journey of being diagnosed. I have built a relationship with the geneticist that works at that clinic. And I was, I remember I was sitting there one day with, with one of my little ones that has Rett syndrome. And I was like, all of, all of the patients I have with Rett syndrome present so vastly different, like very, very different. And which I'm sure is common, but but I just was like, I can't even, in regards to my decision-making, it's, it's so hard to kind of use my experience because they're not comparable. And so I, I was like, you know what, I'm going to reach out to the clinic and see if I can observe because if I'm treating what 25, 30 kids on my caseload and like I can't gain that experience very quickly unless I just decided to have a full caseload of patients with Rett syndrome and that's not possible. So by reaching out to the clinic and saying, hey, can I come observe and listen to y'all's decision making and see however many kiddos they see in one day, that builds my experience and my evidence-based triangle to then be able to take that information and bring it to my caseload. But things like that, that are a little bit more unconventional. Like don't be afraid to do that, especially if you are starting to build that relationship with that provider, because the more that they have a relationship with you, the more they hear their name, the more that they see that you're reaching out and trying to collaborate with patients, they're going to be willing to help you grow and learn because they see that you care and they see that your patients are doing well or you're advocating for them in a way. And that is very beneficial because it's beneficial for them to make you a better therapist in regards to their patients as well. They're not going to invest in a therapist that doesn't seem to be advocating, but that's not the therapist that's going to reach out to them anyways. So don't forget that, that throughout the community, there are ways that you can gain experience and knowledge in that way too. I understand there are some that are, you, you got to hit your CEU requirement, right? Like I get that. I hear that. I feel that everybody needs their 30 hours, but it is more than just meeting the requirement. When you hold those conversations, 
your it make it it puts me in my warm and fuzzies when when you reach out to actual individual practitioners when you hold that crucial conversation with the neonatologist and say look i understand their feet are grower but like we've got issues with da, 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 da. i like how i say that as if i worked in the NICU disclaimer never worked in the NICU but like when you're doing that help me understand that's if we made it that's and we haven't gotten out of NICU or infants <laughs> Well, no, but we've, we've said other things too, but also make sure you do, make sure you do do your research as far as genetics. And I would recommend like taking some sort of course. I know that we have a really great geneticist, like our um, genetics clinic is really great here. And they sometimes will put on free resources and conferences for the community because I don't know if it's a COVID thing or if it's just a lack of knowledge in regards to a lot of providers, but I've gotten a lot of kiddos that come in for genetics, what seems like a very late age and have never seen a geneticist that had all these red flags. So making sure that you're aware of those is really important in regards to any patient that you're seeing, because they can be very subtle and all people say, well, why does it really matter if they seem to be doing well? Well, a lot of symptoms or concerns in regards to certain genetic diagnoses can be very random. So unless they have a genetic diagnosis, you may not know to send them to urology. You may not know to get their heart checked out. You may not know to make sure that they their liver is functioning well. So that that is really important, even if as you, you know, you may say the child is growing and developing in the way that they should be. So mm-hmm. that's just a side note. Mm-hmm. All right. So then let's segue over to toddler and early childhood. Okay. Well, this one I can kind of go for any age, but, and I, I, I say this in a way of this was the course and I haven't specifically taken their conference, but I've dove, dove into their research and a lot of the providers that, that have been a part of their conferences. And it's the, it's responsive feeding therapy because I like Michelle, especially in the way that I have observed you do therapy and the way that I do therapy, a lot of the way that I was reading the child's cues and creating a safe environment and building trust, like it made sense to me and there was research to support it, but I didn't have always have the vocabulary to describe what I was doing and why I was doing it. And then when I dove into responsive feeding, I was like, oh, these are the words that I've needed to be able to describe my therapeutic technique. And sometimes that that helps you more so with parents. I think the courses that they provided, and I had a coworker friend, Leslie took was a part of the conference that was in, was last November as well, but they dive into it's, it's a lot about reading cues and allowing the child to build that intrinsic motivation to be able to eat. So it's overall as a, as a therapeutic technique, I think it's, incredibly valuable and especially in regards to to giving them their bodily autonomy back and and them driving that desire to eat which is what we all want as feeding therapists so they I think I don't know when their next conference will be but they do have newsletters and they have like they do, you can get information in regards to like their values and what is really important into why they use this type of 
therapeutic technique. So going to their conference, even just diving into what responsive feeding is can really help you with your own practice because it is so important. And it, it is similar to what a lot of other like courses will talk about utilize, but it, it gave me more specific vocabulary to be able to explain to parents the importance of why I wasn't just shoving food in their child's mouth or using plastic or why, why um, progress is going to take time. And so that was very helpful. And I'm sure you were going to talk about this one. I've only taken, again, smaller, shorter courses, but the SOS approach to feeding is I haven't taken the full course, but I can say with confidence from trustworthy sources who have and listening to Kay Toomey that it is very helpful and wonderful. I use a lot of her theories modified because I'm not SOS certified in the therapy that I do. And I think it can like, yes, it's very, very helpful with kiddos that are anxious eaters and expanding their diet, but it's also helpful with some of our more medically complex kiddos as well, modifying it in regards to their motor, like their overall gross fine motor skills. But I think it's very helpful into regards to introducing food and allowing them to explore it in a very safe way. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend Feeding Matters. And I do know that that is technically an interprofessional practice course, but because it has so many different disciplines, but really truthfully, their annual conference and, and we, we just had it. I mean, we've, we've missed it. It'll be up again um, come the next spring, but their annual conference is just profound because, you know, this year, for example, there was one talking about a registered dietitian and calorie densities, um, metabolic needs for certain ages. That was a really good one. There was one there that was really hard to watch. Um, honestly, I deep cleaned because I felt compelled to deep clean, but it was, it was the last episode of the trauma. Yes. Yes, The trauma. Yeah. That was really good. That was so freaking wonderful because y'all our families are going through trauma. Our patients are going through trauma. The, the frustration, the fear, the fight or flight, the, you know, will my baby make it? Will they not make it? How much longer do we have to worry about this tube? What happens when the tube comes out? I had a mom talk to me last week about, you know, the tube popped out when the little girl was at her ex-husband's house. And so the ex-husband, instead of putting a clean one in, forced the dirty one back in after it had been on the ground and they didn't clean it properly and blah, 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 blah. But like trauma, right? It was such a good talk because at the end I felt lifted. Right. And, and they even went through and talked about some of their favorite courses that they take. And so I, I, I would highly recommend that class. And one, and I'm going to put this in here because this is the appropriate thing. They had, um, feeding matters had two specific talks just about like what feeding matters has worked on over the last, uh, especially the last year with the advent of our uh, uh, new ICD-10 code that's coming out. But when we're treating, when we're evaluating and treating these patients, 
it does trickle over into our documentation that we are fully utilizing best practice from beginning to end, not just best practice when it comes to our evaluation and treatment methodologies, but also our clinical writing skills and how we're documenting. And they had one whole talk dedicated to the ethics behind CPT coding. And I mean, I know that happened it's been three years now. South Carolina's had three, maybe four years we've had the CPT code for swallowing. And and that was a big rigmarole because people didn't like that it paid less. But like, sorry. I mean, we advocated for the addition of the correct code to accurately reflect what it is that we're doing. You know, your state associations aren't in charge of the, the reimbursement rate. We can't fix that. We can advocate for it. But I mean, it's not like we have bonds, right? But it is our... Our clinical documentation is intimately intertwined with our treatments. So I do recommend that when you see those classes pop up and they have a 90-minute talk on ethics of billing and documentation at a feeding conference, this is critical information. Also, on that note, ASHA, every January, it's typically like the third or fourth week of January, it's like the end of January, they do a two-hour billing documentation update to ev- update everybody on like Medicaid, Medicare guideline changes across the country or like any new changes that are coming. It's normally $79.99 for like the two-hour class. So that is expensive, but you can catch it like on the on-demand. And, and you know, they it's now in like whatever the bundle thing is. I don't know. I paid my money, got the bundle thing. I would recommend taking that class as well because we have to know what's changing because, again, our documentation is intimately intertwined with our eval and treatment approaches. So there's that. Okay, give me, give me another childhood um, or early childhood course that you like or, or interested in. Well, and this is kind of going off your that last course at Feeding Matters, because sometimes courses that aren't directly feeding, so like exactly can be really beneficial to our feeding patients. I'm taking a trauma course in a couple weeks. It's like trust-based relationship intervention. And it dives specifically into dealing with patients and families that have trauma cues to look for, how to kind of how to approach those situations to provide the best treatment and the best therapy. And that's something that, yeah, it's not directly feeding, but if you are more equipped to handle and read those very subtle cues, that can be very helpful in in all of your therapy. Because we counsel, because that's a huge part of what we do with feeding. We work with families. We talk to them about their goals. We have to help them through, especially if we're working in early intervention, these these very difficult stages of grief that they may be going through based on certain diagnoses of their child or or trauma big T or little T that has happened. And so the better equipped you are to handle that and respond appropriately and be a support, the better success your patients will have because the families will trust you and the patient will trust you. So 
it's called TBRI. That's the course that I'm taking. And I'm also, and this isn't, this isn't feeding either, but I would like to mention, because if you're working with this age group, even it like a lot of kiddos with autism, this is really beneficial for, or some of our younger kiddos, a floor time, I'm starting a floor time course on tomorrow actually. And I, I'm so excited because it's similar to responsive feeding and that I didn't realize that this is what I was doing, but it is what I'm doing in therapy. And I had multiple OTs say, Aaron, you do floor time, but like you should probably take the course to be able to have the vocabulary and give yourself more credibility, even though it's not about credibility, but uh, floor time really dives into like emotions and connection and play and how all of those interact to be able to grow their language and their overall skills and their sequencing. And it's just really cool. So if you are working with little ones for both feeding and language, or even I think feed, I I explained it to a parent who I see for both language and feeding. And she said, you know, he doesn't like to sit at the table. He especially doesn't like to eat when we have family around. And I said, well, connection is really hard for him. He, it's very hard for him to know how to connect with another person because the way that he wants to play and engage doesn't necessarily fit into the way that we are taught to play and engage. It doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it harder to connect with someone that's neurotypical. And you're asking him to do something at the table that is very difficult because we don't like to eat a variety of foods. And we're asking him to connect with someone else at the table, someone that he's not as comfortable with while he's sitting in a chair and can't run around because when we need a ton of sensory input. So this is just asking way too much of him. And it's, it's understandable why he's having this reaction. But with floor time, I have not really been able to make much progress with feeding because I haven't built a connection with him. If he's not motivated by me and want to interact with me, feeding therapy is going to be really hard. So I've really taken a step back and been like, okay, let's connect. Let's find a way to engage and build trust with you before we can go and even address the feeding concerns. So in a roundabout way, Floor time is really also great for fleeting. <laughs> <laughs> I love this so much. Yes, but you're right. Uh-huh. Okay, so I'm going to piggyback on your floor time and go with no tube. NoTube.com had Dr. Marion Russell, um, who is an OT woman, is brilliant and is possibly just, have you ever like, I haven't, I have yet to meet this woman in person, but like I've met her virtually like several times. And every once in a while, I just, you meet that person where you're like, my soul likes the company of your soul. And she's a Lego mom. Like I'm a Lego mom. So like, we just, we, that was, that those were fun conversations to be had, but in no tube, they're the world's leading um, feeding tube dependency clinic. And um, she came over to the States to work on adding a program here in the States. And to my knowledge, they're working on getting approved with insurances and blah, 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 blah. But they talk about how you can start a meal as a picnic on the floor. And they talk about, um, and they've got, this is what's fantastic. They go through and they have 
webinars for free and little vignettes and stories for free on their website. It's, um, is it notube.org or .net or .com? One is a tire company and the other one is the feeding tube dependency clinic. So make sure that like you double check which your, your browser or is that the word browser? Maybe not browser. Make sure the alphabet after the dot is correct. There we go. But that the resources that they have, they talk about their approach. They talk about the evidence. They talk about why it's critical that we take away the trigger points because it gets back to trauma, right? So um, of our toddlers and children have had trauma around a kitchen table, around a high chair. So they start with the entire family simply having a picnic on the living room or kitchen floor. And I think that's fantastic. Also, their approach in order to qualify to be accepted within their program, you have to meet very specific health standards. Because it, she says, you know, we anticipate when we move a child from feeding tube to oral feeds, we anticipate up to a 10% weight loss. That that's that's normal, right? So when it supersedes 10%, that you know they start fretting. But that's that means the child has to be medically stable to go through that transition. And it is, it lives, eat, breathes, exemplifies best practice for interprofessional practice. So all communications go through one centralized hub and the caregivers have access to every single communication. So there's none of this, he said, she said, practitioners acting as if they are the subject matter experts, because in truth, the caregiver is the subject matter expert on their child. And I remember pre-children, I reached out to them in Austria and was like, can I please like come and y'all train me and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they weren't doing anything like that then, but now they're doing these courses that you can get trained on. And it's just wonderful. And she also presented at Feeding Matters and she was a guest with us. I mean, she just, she is, I just hold her um, in the most highest regard, but um, I do, I do love the no tube approach. Now, another one that, is it a CEU? Is it not a CEU? It depends on if you can catch her live. Sherry Fraker, when she guest lectures with um, her co-author, Laura Fishburne, am I saying this correctly, Erin? I, I think that's correct. Um, they authored a food chain and often you will find them presenting at state associations or um, like larger rehab companies or hospital systems would contract them directly to come out and to do a presentation on free chaining or um, food chaining there. That is fantastic. That book is absolutely wonderful. And um, she's even doing some work now because she's a breast cancer survivor with food chaining specific for oncology patients after she's like walked that walk and been on that journey and understood like the unique deficits that come with um, PO acquisition as an adult post head neck cancer and um, or um, complications from breast cancer. So uh, I, I think that's wonderful that she's giving back again. But I highly, highly recommend that approach. Yep. What, what other courses you got? Anything from Marsha Dunn-Klein is wonderful. She's one that every time I see her lecture, I like pick up a new thing. Like I pick up a new 
idea or strategy to utilize in my sessions because she's just, and she's so kind and she has a lot of resources that she shares that you can use. Like I use her bite size chart for like you have different animals and you use them for different bite sizes. And she has videos on her, her website that is a, one of a kiddo that she used to treat that made a video of how he tries new food. And that's been really great for a lot of my older kiddos to watch another child explain his fears and anxieties around food and then be able to kind of model that. So, and she just has a lot of nuggets of information that are really great. She's coming back at the end of the month. I have her back for another episode on the last day of June to end up dysphagia awareness month. And she just started y'all. She just started the get permission Institute. So she'll have courses on her website. Uh, I think she said they were one hour to three hour long guest lectures. Like she's invited um, individuals in the PFD community to come do CEU webinars on her um, website, as well as her big courses. And I want to geek out and meet Suzanne Evans Morris and like take her her class because like that to me would just be like but like I want to see the two of them present together because I mean they've been doing this for 30 40 and and what I love is that they let food be thy medicine there's no tools there's no you have to go buy product in order to teach this kind of chew pattern it's a slowly progress and change the food according to what the child is willing to accept and doing it within a circle of trust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's that trust is huge and that, that relationship. So not only just building a relationship with you, but building that relationship with the family, because if, especially if, at any age. I mean, if a mama has tried for a week or two to breastfeed her baby and is struggling, like that's a relationship that isn't growing in the way that that family imagined it growing. And so you have to be very cognizant of you're not just building these skills, you're building these relationships and these connections. And we need to make sure that we're also putting on like our communication hat. I know I talk about this a lot, but we are always, always, always teaching and on and reading communication. Just even if you're a even if you're a clinician whose caseload is a hundred percent feeding, it's also a hundred percent communication. So if you think you aren't going to be teaching language and communication by just doing feeding, you are sadly mistaken. And remember, we 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 teach that first. And so to A, keep up those skills, whether it be through reading more on trauma or taking courses on AAC, if your kiddos have AAC, if your child has an AAC device and you are not using it in the feeding session, that is a disservice to that child. That is a disservice to that family. That is a disservice to you. If you know that child is having very significant not behaviors, I don't want to call it that, but what are viewed outside as behaviors, their response to something at the table with feeding, like you may have to pull back and work. And it, what's interesting is I have, um, in a lot of my conversations with occupational therapists, they may pick up a kid for feeding. And I've heard them say a lot, 
Well, we started working on feeding, but we realized there were so many sensory and regulation components that we needed to really start from before we could even get to the feeding and get to the table. So if we are sitting there as, you know, speech therapists, speech and language therapists, and there's such a miscommunication, why are we not then taking a step back and working on that relationship and communication as well? So by taking a lot of these other courses that can really benefit your practice too and allow you to come at it from different perspectives, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It does. It does. Y'all, that is absolutely key. Okay. So the, all right. So then let me go here. Asha this year, and I'm humbled to say that I um, was part of the, planning committee for the very first, uh, basically I read a bunch of like submissions, but like that was cool. Um, also there were some really, really good submissions. Um, but this Asha in November, they're going to have the very first pediatric feeding and swallowing track, which is phenomenal. But that's because SIG 13 knows we need specific courses on this. And is that even though, yes, it's the annual speech pathology conference, there's, have you noticed that over the last couple of years when you've gone to an ASHA conference, we're getting call for papers and featured speakers that are from the allied health or from the medical world or from the educational world for that matter? I mean, that's, that's fundamental. So I would recommend y'all this year, I I think it's going to be face-to-face and some webinars, but pursue the courses and listen to the greats in our field. I mean, Aaron and I, the last ASHA conference, we got to meet Joan Arvidson shaking like a leaf. Oh my God, I was shaking like a leaf. My heart was racing the entire time, but go and listen to, she's a fairy princess come to life, godmother of our field. And, but go and listen to her. And then stick around for the talk afterwards where a pediatrician comes in and opens their heart and says, Hey, by the way, we may only get one night of dysphagia in all of our academic coursework. And then we see it how many times a week and we have to step it up on the other side through taking courses, right? Same concept, but ASHA, I would, I would recommend the ASHA convention later this fall and, and every year. And yeah, those feeding matters. What other what other big conference? Just oh my God, bless America, Dysphagia Society. Yes, the Dysphagia Research Society is an interprofessional conference, and it is um, yes, March fourteenth through seventeenth at San Juan, Puerto Rico, twenty twenty two. Dysphagia Research Society. This cutting Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. Yes, but it is where research to practice happens. The people that are coming are doing the research. There's a 20 year average timeline between research goals and two. That's absolutely unacceptable. We, we have to do better. We can't sit in our laurels for 20 years before something's adopted. The state conferences are really good for networking too with people that are just looking for, just looking for people to communicate with and have support because it can feel really daunting and lonely, especially as younger clinicians. And we always talk about this, about 
continuing to reach out to providers because, you know, you will get shot down by some, but you will find providers that are really open and, and want to work with you and want to help teach you as well. Because if they can mentor you in regards to their knowledge, that's only helpful for that interdisciplinary care with their patients. And, and like we said before, these courses are, and these researchers, if if you're going to be an expert in something, especially in a field as vast as pediatric feeding and swallowing, these researchers and these experts do have their specialties within the field that we're in. So make sure that if you're taking a course, it is going to be beneficial for your patient population or where you're trying to grow your skills. If someone is claiming to be the be-all, end-all, provide you with everything that you need to know to be a pediatric feeding and swallowing therapist, I challenge you to take a look at that again and really dive deep because when you're going into, you know, Marsha Dunklein talks about the patient population that she works with. Um, Catherine Shaker works with medically complex infants as well as Aaron Ross does. These experts are phenomenal because they have chosen what they're passionate about and have dove into that population and that research. It is not to say that you can't treat patients of all, you know, all these different patients and have them on your caseload, but it is to say that each course may not be the course or may not be very quickly and easily transferable to all of those patients. There are pieces of it that there are pieces of it and wisdom and knowledge from all of these courses that I'm sure you can use with all of your patients. But I just I think it's important to know like there's not going to be a course that's going to work for every patient and that's okay and your experiences within that are going to be very helpful. But when there is someone that's saying that they're going to that you take their course and you're going to know everything and you're going to be set and prepared to take on all these patients, that's I just challenge you to take a step back with that. My grandma would call that snake oil. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. All right. couple more. And I know we've gone over, but this is, we just feel really strongly that we want to give y'all great suggestions. The American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders has a killer class on the development of the respiratory and the gastrointestinal systems. It's a 90 minute class, but here's the deal. If you need to, you need to know typical to be able to better identify atypical, right? And, and we don't really get taught typical development of uh, those systems in grad school. I mean, it just doesn't really happen because it's too far below the clavicle, but that's another, that's another course that I would recommend. And then I just, y'all, Trust but verify. Trust but verify. So go into every class that you take and critically assess what you're being told. And and fact check the references because everybody comes with good intentions of teaching, but their evidence-based triangle could be um, is different than yours, and that could be skewed for a litany of different reasons. So make sure that when you're going through the course, trust but verify, and and be a sponge. Don't think that may I never hit the point in my career where I am unteachable because if I'm unteachable, then I need to retire. 
And um, we had 22 years left on a mortgage, so that's not happening <laughs> anytime soon. Actually, it's almost 21 years. Huzzah! <laughs> but like, and take students, as you always say, that's continuing education or mentor. I mean, I am the, the people that I'm mentoring on my team, like the questions that they ask me make me go back. And, and they also, I mean, yes, this is, can be very stressful because the more patient, like the people that I'm mentoring, their patients are also now on my heart. And that can be overwhelming. Cause once you ask me about a patient and I know you're the same way, like I'm going to be thinking about them and, and trying to help in any way that I can. But that's another number of patients that I'm learning from as well. That's expanding my evidence-based triangle when I have people on my feeding team that ask me questions and have me sit in on their sessions and we work together and we brainstorm. And that's been really fun to be able to kind of work together with them and teach hopefully well enough to help them. But that's that in and of itself is is a way that you can learn and and they'll ask me something and I'll be like, you know what? I don't quite know the answer, but let me dive into this book because when I read this book before, I didn't have this question, but I think the answer might be here now. You know what I mean? Like we read the books. That's why reading books you've already read and taking courses you've already taken, you may, you may learn something new each time. Yeah. You'll, you'll hear, you'll hear the message through a different filter. Okay. I honestly, I think we should do this once a year because there's so much coming out. We need to do it. You know what? We did it last time after we went to ASHA. About two months later, we did an ASHA follow-up. Let's do that again. Like our top 10 takeaways from the ASHA convention, because I think that would be fantastic. It has been an absolutely crazy month. I mean, the craziest of the crazies. And um, we are so joyful that you have joined us for the Pediatric Feeding Disorders Month of May and Dysphagia Month of June. And I have been completely overwhelmed with love for all of your kind words for the book. It makes me turtle, um, just kind of like go into like hibernation mode, which is why everything in the house is Oh, my uncle's turtle is, yes. when we take pictures, my uncle says turtle and he lifts his neck out. So it's just a different turtle. Yeah, no, my, my turtle, my, I go into my little, um, house box uh-huh. on my back, mm-hmm. <laughs> but y'all thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, seriously, chasing the swallows made it to Denmark, to Australia, to Canada and all across the continent. United. Do you think that means we have to take a trip to Australia? Cause like a person over there bought the book. You know what I mean? Like, I think it means we should go I'm there. Game. I'm down. I think we should do that. Yes. But can we do that without any humans? Because I don't want to have to pack car seats on a flight. No. And I have to find a husband and they <laughs> might just, they, I don't have time. <laughs> Maybe your husband is waiting for you in Australia and we just have to go to. I think he is. Yes. See, this makes yeah, sense. <laughs> oh, Aaron's love life. <laughs> okay. Everybody out there, thank you, thank you. As always, we love it when you follow us on First Bite Podcast. And make sure you go check out uh, our mini-series, Understanding Dysphagia, with the phenomenal volunteers for the Dysphagia Outreach Project uh, that was released. It covers dysphagia across the life continuum. Huge shout-out to Casey Lewis and her brilliant NICU self and Dr. Rocky Garcia for her PFD lecture and to the phenomenal Kristen West for her PFD in the school's um, episodes. So go check them out. But Erin, much love, lady.
Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Babies.